Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us for America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho. Now, normally we are live in studio on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, except when Northwestern University has a Monday night sports event and then that broadcast takes precedence. It's a rare occurrence, but it is the case tonight. And yet... We still have a show for you. We're recording it in our normal time slot on Monday night, but we're releasing it as a podcast only. And this means Oliver might actually swear, so watch out. All right, on the show tonight, our Chalk Talk segment takes a look at those events that happened before and after an opera performance, pre-show dinners, post-show discussions, and, as seen last Sunday night at L.A. Opera, after parties. Do they add to the experience or do they distract from the main event? Check out the related article from the LA Times. The link's on our website, operaboxscore.com. Also on the show, you get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on them in the two-minute drill. Plus, Monday evening quarterback returns when we review the new production of Les Troyens by Hector Berlioz at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Mega hit or epic fail, we'll tell you what we think. The we being me, George Cedarquist, and <laughs> Oliver Camacho. How are you, man? I'm great. How was your Thanksgiving? Um, I, you know, I'm like a, a Stepson, Step, Stepford wife, okay. or a 50s era uh, housewife and mother. So all I do is take care of people and cook uh, for the holidays. So, so I, don't, I don't relax. Okay, yeah. so you cook the whole meal. Yeah. Turkey, yeah. stuffing, Everything. gravy. Yeah, I started at, well, I started the day before, but I mean, when I actually started like in the kitchen, like getting prep ready, 9 a.m., and we ate... Um, 9 a.m. Yeah, 9 a.m. I know it's late for some people, but man, yeah. I haven't finished throwing up by then. <laughs> we uh, ate at eight o'clock in the evening because I have family coming from all over the place, and then uh, eating was done at about 10:30, and I cleaned until about one. And Do then you got drink there. while you cook? Um, there's a certain point where you can't. If you start drinking too early, you will <laughs> lose a finger or something like that. Some drinking happened uh, in the last 90 minutes when like things are just being reheated and like sauces being made and stuff like that. Yeah. But but during the vegetable cutting and the you know smearing the turkey with butter, you don't want to be drinking while doing that because you'll get salmonella. You know, so very very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, I I ate some turkey and some yeah. stuffing and all that. I also watched a ton of sports. Thanksgiving weekend is a great time to watch sports. <sighs> watch no TV. <laughs> uh, my Detroit Lions won on Thanksgiving Day. They are they play a traditional wow. game on Thanksgiving. Uh, my team. Michigan Wolverines lost a nail biter to yeah. the evil Ohio State Buckeyes, okay. which are the axis of evil. If you're a Michigan fan like me, uh, what did I, Anthony Rizzo do? 
Dude, what you? He's he's a baseball player. I know, but he must have done something. Did he do anything? He probably weekend? he probably watched football. Like okay, ninety five percent of America. <laughs> <laughs> That's my contribution. He's adorable. Should we talk some opera? He's got great legs too. Did you see him on SNL wearing those short shorts? I did see that. Yeah, I did. I was see kind that. of mm, yeah. I there was some movement there when he so. was pretending to be like a male stripper. Yeah. 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 Funny. Where was that Chris Bryant guy though? The guy with the good face but the bad skin. So bad skin. He's got bad skin. Like he's got. Like he wears his hat. Like he needs to like wash his face. You like never that. see it that close up yeah. on the baseball. Diamond. Yeah, but he's really handsome. So he's got great teeth. <laughs> Chalk talk on Opera Box Score. All right, so Chalk Talk tonight. We're talking about everything that happens before the opera and after the opera rather than the opera itself. So we've got pre-show lectures, we've got post-show discussions, and then they've started doing this thing at LA Opera, which is basically this this after party. I want to get to that in one second. First of all, Oliver, do you ever go to those pre-show lectures? You know, I worked this summer uh, at Grand Park Music Festival, and I was obliged to coordinate front of house staff for pre-show lectures. And I have to say that there there is a group of people who are like diehard right. into like going to the, listen to the composer or whatever. And they seem really fun, but they're not actually fun. You know, it's interesting if you're like a total geek, but they're not an environment where people are relaxed yet or people are like in the mood. Like it usually are the people that are a little bit weird and, um, you know. A little bit weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the pre-show stuff. Um, I think there's not quite like a coolness about pre-show. Definitely game. not cool to go to the pre-show lecture. Here's yeah. my problem with the pre-show. Also, lecture. when are you going to eat dinner if you're going to the pre-show? I have right absolutely now? no yeah. idea. You're going to like sneak a sandwich into one of the intermissions, yeah. I guess. For me, everything that you need to know should be on that stage, hmm. and I don't think the pre-show lecture should like try and tell you the story or tell you about the concept or. I, all of that is great to read in the program on the way home, but I feel like as an audience member, the director's job is to give you everything you need in the show, in the moment, on that stage. I agree with you about the director's job and making things very explicit, but sometimes you need to give a little bit of musical language to the audience ahead of time. And like, here is a very famous phrase from this aria, or here is the type of harmony you can expect to hear in this show. Here's what these harmonies mean. Like, Electra, if you've never seen Electra before, you know, like, this is what's the big picture that's happening musically in this show. Mm-hmm. Or Turandot. Here are some really racist pentatonic scales. <laughs> <laughs> what about the post-show discussion? These are less prevalent in opera than they are in theater. Are you talking about like talkbacks? Talkbacks, yeah. yeah. Um, uncomfortable. Yeah, I I mean, I want to be able to socialize after the show. And I wouldn't mind if the talkback was with alcohol and like it was like really informal. But if there's like a moderator and there's like the composer or one of the artists or the director like sitting in a chair in front of you and like you have to, you know, sound smart in front of all these people who are like, it's like you're in a class not my thing. Yeah, again, my problem with the post-show discussion, it's not the type of thing that I want to stick around for because mm-hmm. usually it's about the artistic process that mm-hmm. has unfolded, and I've been part of that process, whether mm-hmm. it's my own show yeah. or if I'm going to see another show. It's like, I, this is my job. I don't, I'm don't. i not that interested 
right now and what this artistic process was. I will say we did do a talkback for Song from the Uproar yeah. at Chicago. Whose Uproar. idea was that? It was not my idea. Okay. I actually thought it was pretty successful. It was mm. because the composer was there, obviously. Yeah. That's why it was exciting. Now, so let's cut over to the West Coast then. This idea of the after party at L.A. Opera. So they've just finished this run of Philip Glass's opera, Akhenaten. It's a three-hour show. And now, Matthew O'Quinn, who's the artist-in-residence, is the curator of these, I think they're monthly, uh, soirees or salons, basically, which are musical events. Looks like they're about an hour. Mm -hmm. They're free if you've gone to see the opera at L.A. Opera that Mm -hmm. night, or they're five bucks if you Mm -hmm. just show up. And you get... I think you there's a cash bar and there's mm. some food for purchase and then it's it's music people are talking and chatting they're no, they don't have to be quiet if they don't want to they can just you according know. to that LA Times yeah. article again on our website operaboxscore.com it looks like people are supposed to be kind of chit-chatting but yeah. actually in reality people shut up and they really do listen to the to the We're event. trained like that we're like we're like trained animals you know So just what's your gut take I on that? Love this. I think it's genius, and I hope that every opera company tries to steal this idea. Um, bring in like a big name like Oquan, well, big to us, you know, mm-hmm. but a young person who's innovative and he probably helped curate the program. And it's a mixture of art song with piano and like some singer songwriter stuff, maybe with acoustic guitar. I'm not even sure. They did like a Bob Dylan song, they did the Leonard Cohen Hallelujah, which is like the right time to sing that song before he died. Oh, really? Is that what it was? Yeah. Um, and then there's, you know, a Schubert song or whatnot. And I th- I think that's great. And to show the relationship between that type of music, I mean, Schubert wasn't writing for necessarily a big concert hall. He was writing for his friends, and it was, like, performed in a salon. And we don't have salons that much anymore. We have the Liederstube here in Chicago, mm-hmm. but there aren't really places where you can go hear, you know, professionally trained singers sing art song in an intimate environment with alcohol, you know? Salon feels pretentious to me. Uh, okay. <laughs> Don't you think it's pretentious? The word salon or the... The word salon. What would you call it? I, I don't know. I like don't a have hangout? A, better... <laughs> a hang. A hang, yeah. A, a leader. Dang. That's a, a fine a, hang. A leader hang. A leader hang. Now that is something I would go to. A salon, that that's just not my bag, but okay. I'm not going to mince words over that. It This thing feels a little bit L.A. to me. It okay. feels a little bit like what, you kind of go to be seen, okay. like, you know, the. it's all about the party, it's all about the people, and it just, L.A. Opera has So you're, are you poo-pooing it? Is that I'm not happening? poo-pooing it. Okay. Again, I'm not poo-pooing it. Look, we don't have this type of thing in Chicago, as far as I know. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, well, there is an entire event, or a series of events called Beyond the Aria, which the whole thing is a salon, okay. but it's really expensive. And so, and it's the main attraction. It's not... You, it, what it is is um, unscripted, so-called unscripted performances mm-hmm. uh, by famous opera singers and young artists from the Ryan Opera Center. And they bring out Christine Brewer, Renee Fleming, or you know Susanna Phillips, and they have like a set program of things that are legit. And then they loosen it up a little bit. They sing some show tunes or some folk songs, or whatever, and they're really fun. And I've now that I work at the Harris Theater, I've had a chance to see a couple of them, and uh, they're. People love it, but it only the the space only seats about three hundred people, and those are all of our like trustees and board of directors. Right, <laughs> so, right. So yeah. it becomes a very elite event. But I think it's the type of thing that would could really appeal to a lot of because people. because the L.A. Opera thing again that event 
uh, has no relation to the opera that mm -hmm. has just taken place. And I'm not right. saying that there does need to be a relationship between yeah. those two things. It's more just like, let's But it could be. I mean, like, if you were seeing, you know, Pelias and Melisande, it'd be so cool to then hear some of the Pelias, I mean, the, the WC. Uh, chanson, which some of them are very cabaret, some of them are very, very light, you know, and some of them have the same musical language, and some of them are even weirder than Pelleas. And I think it'd be really cool to have like a Night of Debussy or bring in some of the Belle Epoque composers and do more Salani things, you know, like Rinaldo Hahn or something like that. You're giving you know? me hives every time you say Salon. <laughs> Leader hangy things. <laughs> but it seems to Chans me that chanson what's hang. interesting about the LA opera thing is that the music in that after party was not just opera music. Yeah. Oquan when he was curating it was I think able maybe to it's get coin I'm not sure pop music in there okay. as yeah. well that to me is where the real interesting see I could curate something really cool like that too yeah. if you give me a chance you opera administrators who are listening to this I'm sure so many of you are other people in this and yeah. not in this country have done this right the mostly Mozart festival in New York has mm -hmm. a thing called a little night music uh, San Francisco Opera has a thing called Classical Revolution over in London. Wigmore Hall in uh, has got its own program. They as do well. what? It, mm -hmm. I don't know what they're doing at Wigmore Hall. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a similar thing basically. It's like after the recitals at Wigmore Hall, okay. there's like a much smaller thing. There's booze and uh, booze and there's food. Yeah, uh, so I think well. this is how the big companies can catch the wave of the movement towards chamber music. It's chamber opera. I think if they. I mean, not after Les Troyennes, which is five hours, but, you know, if you put on a show like a lecture, which is like less than two hours long, or, um, you know, a couple of one acts, you know, like uh, Pagliacci and Cavalleria, yeah. you still have a little bit of time left in the evening, you know, to do something like this. I don't think it'll work with every show, but... Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a great idea. I think there are people who might have gone to the opera for the first time and they maybe felt a little weird about it. And then this is something that's much more their speed, especially if you can have a little nibble or you're not supposed to like sit, sit on your hands and you can kind of be more interactive or whatnot, you know. Because this is the problem with lyric is that because of where it's situated here in Chicago, is that it's right downtown, it's in the part of the town we call the loop. It's pretty dead mm -hmm. when these shows, evening shows get out. Is that there's no place to go and hang and to talk about the work that you've just seen. Yeah, for those people who are, not, wanted, who are not Chicagoans, Chicago has like a really big business district, which is called The Loop. And our opera house is actually in the business district. So after hours, there isn't much nightlife. It's like nasty commuter bars, basically, yeah. which may not even be open. But if you go, if you walk like half a mile or a mile in either direction, you'll find stuff. But it's not very... Uh, obvious. It's not like intuitive, and it's not very pedestrian friendly either. You know? And so, people our age who are really into opera but also want to socialize, we want to go to a place where we can continue to talk about the work we've just seen. We yeah. want to go to a place where we could see related performance. Again, we're not going to stay up till three a.m. Yeah. But like to, to continue the conversation, and lyric doesn't have that right now. That's what I love about this LA opera thing. Yeah. That it really does provide that place. And plus, Akhenaten was such a cool show. Philip Glass, everybody knows who he is and there's you know countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo like butt naked on stage like so many things to talk about you know right right exactly you know it makes me think of Michael Rice's idea mm -hmm. which was and correct me if I'm wrong but he'd said this on Opera Now was that he wanted to have in the opera house like a bar yep. where there were HD screens yep. of the performance in progress and it would basically it was like it's like a sports bar where you could really just go drink and eat talk and watch, quote, the game, yeah. the opera, 
on those screens. It is such a genius idea. Do you think we should charge separate admission for that or only ticket holders? Can have that. I think, oh no! I think you should charge separate admission. Okay. Because what if it became a place where, like, you could come in off the street, you just want to drink, yeah, and then lo and behold, there's like opera happening on a screen. Like, who knows? Okay, but there's there's a cover to get into that bar. But you there's can't... a cover. Okay. There'd be a cover. Yeah, okay. exactly. And you'd have to pay for drinks and pay for food. And yeah, 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 yeah. I just thought his idea was great. And then people during the intermission come in, and then the bar is already full. Exactly. Which might not be so cool. You know, if you are want to grab a drink in the middle of the show and like the bar is already full with people, maybe know? maybe there needs to be like a different bar then, where like you can pre-order the drinks. This is a lot of okay. bars. Yeah. yeah, I just thought his idea was brilliant in terms of like how far you can take this sort of the post, the post party, after party, intra party. You've yeah, got pre parties and after. Parties. I feel like maybe it should be. Well, I think that there is probably some. Uh, Opportunity for sales uh, for people just coming off the street to get a sample of the opera. Yeah, but there should also be the possibility for people who like maybe have standing room tickets or people who, you know, come late, you know, or people who get bored and actually want to have a drink and like be more social to see it. So if you open it up to the entire public, that might preclude some of those people. Well, despite me hating on LA earlier on in this segment, I do think this is a great idea. I think it's a great article. Make it it, that article Chicago. made me feel good. It made me feel like inspired. Like, yes, here's a company that's like thinking outside the box and doing something awesome. You know? It should. It should. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Let us know what you guys are thinking out there. You can tweet us. The hashtag is Opera Balls. We'll be right back. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news, everything you need to know in two minutes or less. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is seeking permission in court to sell off a memorabilia collection with an estimated value of more than $1 million that includes a gold cigarette holder that belonged to the base Ezio Pinza, a jeweled baton owned by the composer Richard Wagner, and a silver, ivory, and diamond pen that was used by the composer Giacomo Mayabir. Also at the Met this Thursday is the premiere of Finnish and Female, composer Kaya Sariajo's L'Amour de Loin. The Met hasn't performed an opera written by a woman since Ethel Smythe's Der Walt in 1903. On the disabled list this week, the tenor Jonas Kaufman has called off a forthcoming Japan tour. The earliest he will return to singing is at the Nobel Prize concert on December 8. La Repubblica reports that the American soprano Kristen Lewis collapsed on stage at La Scala in the penultimate performance of Porgy and Bess. She was treated by a doctor in full view of the audience and resumed the role after an eight-minute gap. Apparently, they couldn't lower the curtain because she lay at the front beneath the proscenium. Soprano Anna Vereslamsky tore a ligament in her leg two days before going on stage in the title role in a new production of Donizetti's Lucia de la Memor at Oper Leipzig, the first time she'd sung the role. Director Katarina Talbach's solution was to put Vereslamsky's Lucia in a wheelchair and have her pushed around the stage with Talbach playing the part of Lucia's dead mother. More from overseas, American director David Alden is staging the premiere of Benjamin Britten's opera Billy Budd at Russia's Boyshoi 
excuse me, Bolshoi Theater. Placido Domingo has called off his hotly anticipated Havana homecoming due to the period of mourning declared for the death of Fidel Castro. Challenging the commonly held assumption that opera singers can't act, London opera company Euphonia Studio is presenting a triple bill of short plays by Anton Chekhov with the company's singers acting in the plays. And the first statue dedicated to a music publisher has just been erected. It's of Giulio Ricordi, who is Verdi's publisher, and it's in Milan. Finally, on this day, November 28th, the premiere of La Callisto by Cavalli in Venice in 1651, the premiere of L'Etoile by Chabrier in Paris in 1877, and the premiere of Where the Wild Things Are by Oliver Nussen in Brussels in 1980. That's the two-minute drill. a little bit more than two minutes. There was a lot of stuff there. Is it ever really two minutes? Well, it, it used to be. It really okay. depends on what kind of a week it's been. Do you have, like, the, what happened to the song? Is the song playing? Because I didn't hear the song. The song okay. will be playing underneath oh, Okay, it very good. Yeah, they will have heard that song. Again. Okay. <laughs> so, um, is that song timed to be two minutes? It is. Oh, okay. Exactly. Okay. That's so how to, I know. That's a little was... nugget for the listeners, <laughs> is that I always have that song in my ear. See, this is what the podcast teaches everyone. It's like, it's behind the curtain, yep. you know? Oh, this also just made, so. Let's, let, let's start off here. Metropolitan Opera Guild, selling off this memorabilia. Mm. But what's the memorabilia again? You said it's uh, a A cigarette holder that okay. belonged to this base. Yeah, yeah, it's a pencil cigarette yep. holder. Okay. A baton used by Richard Wagner. That would probably go over a lot. Yeah. And a pen used by the composer Meyerbeer. Mm. Nobody cares. No, no, I mean, not in Chicago. They don't care about Meyerbeer. We haven't seen a Meyerbeer opera for a long Here's time. Here's my point. Selling yeah. off stuff like this all yeah. to make a little bit over a million dollars. Is that really worth it? Oh, it's going to make a million dollars? That's the idea. The estimated value is more than a million. Hmm. But clearly not more than two million, or else yeah. the Times, which is where the article's from, would have said more than two million. If you're the Met and you're in financial problems, which they yeah. are, is it really worth selling off this stuff for a million dollars? Yeah, that seems like you're just trying to control loss at this point. You're not really adding to the bottom line, you know? Um, yeah, that's that's really sad. I think there was one point where they were uh putting up the Chagall's for S collateral, you know, or they were going to sell the chandeliers or something like that. Like, yeah, that's, that's kind of sad if you're it's in sad. that type of position, you know, it doesn't make me angry the way that when the city of Detroit decided to sell off the collection of the Detroit Institute of the arts mm. in order to help this city not be bankrupt, that made me angry. This is just like, I, I don't see the math behind it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that a million dollars this year, it's going to be very little in a couple of years, you know? So you might as well keep your keep your stuff, you know, because people like to see that stuff, you know? Exactly. Uh, L'amour de, de loin, one day. L'amour de loin. I will say that right. It's French okay. is my worst operatic we, and, language. Where's Giovanna? So. Um, is this an opera that you are, in reality, ever going to go see? I mean, it's going to be on the HD broadcast. Okay. So I probably will see because I enjoy the HD broadcasts. Yeah. I had That's what my father-in-law gave me for Christmas last year. Was a ticket to the broadcast. Which when one? we went and saw Pearl Fishers together. That was your gift, courtesy of my oh. father-in-law. Maybe I should get the same present, and we should go see the opera. Yeah, maybe. Um, the the more one, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's. I mean, it's. I want to see Rosen Cavalier, and I want to see Eugene Onegin. I think that's one of the shows that they're doing. Okay. Well, no, no, it's Rosen Cavalier for sure, and there's another show that I'm interested in. But I'll try to see all of them yeah. if I can. Um, no, I mean, it's musically not my cup of tea, but I think Gerald Finley's going to be in it, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I'm a big fan of his. Eric Owens. Oh, Eric Owens is yeah. in it? Oh. Um, 
Maybe it's not Joe Finley then. You're inching away from yeah. the mic, Oliver. <laughs> no, I mean, it's fine. Um, I, I'm, I'm not crazy about 21st century opera, but I go anyway, and maybe I'll like it. You know, I liked um, the Nico Muley piece. I didn't think I was going to like it, you know, mm-hmm. so. Right on. Uh, let's take a look at the disabled list, as mm-hmm. I'm calling it now. Yours, I love it. Kaufman, this, this guy, man, he just cannot catch a break. I mean, he has been sick for, what, two, three months now? Yeah, I'm worried. Um, I mean, he is the premier tenor on the stage. The right world's now. greatest tenor. Uh, yeah, I guess. You know, but he's I don't know. Crumbling what, before our eyes. Yeah, I don't know if it's faulty technique or if he's really sick or what. He's having like vocal problems. Like it's kind of scary. I mean, at what point, if you're an audience member who really knows their stuff like you, do you start to panic and you think this guy's never gonna come back? After how many months off? Well, there are people who've disappeared for you know six months at a time and and got their act together and came back you know that's not uncommon but it just makes me wonder if he has been making bad decisions all along and like he has this tone quality that suggests a bigger voice but when you hear him in the theater you're like "Mm, this voice is actually not that big but it's really dark you know so i think that whoever is managing him or maybe even himself are, are thinking that he can do this like Wagnerian uh, Helen repertoire and maybe he can't, you know, and I don't know if he was thinking about doing Otello at some point or what other big dramatic roles have been on his uh, list of things to do, but maybe he was better off just staying on the lyric side. You don't know. I mean, Rolanda Villazon famously had so many breakdowns in his career. Some of them might have been mental, but he might have had some vocal ones too. But then he did that Hoffman last year. We played a clip from it. He sounded great. So there's always a chance that you can sort it out and come back. Is it less punishing just to do like a recital schedule or a recital tour as opposed to full roles in productions? I think a recital tour is not a bad idea. I don't know how interesting that is for the artist to do the same recital again and again. But um, no, when you're not, when you don't have to sing over an orchestra, you know, I think that's great. You know, yes, you sing more, but I think you sing less loud. Kristen Lewis was this American soprano singing the role of Bess in Porgy and Bess by Gershwin at La Scala in Italy. And she collapses in full view of the audience. Isn't Bess a drug addict in this show? Makes sense. Yeah, so it? maybe it's like works out just fine. <laughs> it's like, a... uh, is there a doctor in the house? Yeah. A doctor comes on stage, and apparently, this is just a quote, she says, I'm fine, the show must go on, to the audience. Oh, she has like a New York accent all of a sudden. Yeah, she kind of sounds like a Brooklyn. short, red-haired guy. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so she is, I'm not quite sure what was the problem, why she fainted exactly. Yeah, maybe, maybe she, she was, locked her knees. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, given yeah. smelling salts. Yeah, exactly. Pops up, and they, they couldn't like lower the curtain, right, because she was downstage of the mm. curtain. Uh, I don't know what the set design was like. And yeah. then she pops up and she finishes. I mean, there was she was in the penultimate yeah. uh, it was in the penultimate performance. I don't know what scene this happened yeah. in. But we've show. seen things like that, like where like Lady Gaga like, you know, hurls on stage and she like continues to go on. You know, I thought so. that was part of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean I, I think that it is a very athletic feat and sometimes you just gotta like push through, you know. Talk about the show going on. Anna Virovlansky is singing uh, the title role mm-hmm. in Lucia de Lammermoor in Leipzig. And she tears a ligament in her leg. This sounds like a sports injury. Mm-hmm. Like when you, you know, yeah. your ACL or something like that. Two days before 
the production is supposed to open. It's a new production. Oh, it's okay. Hadn't happened yet. Okay. Hadn't happened yet. So this is a big deal. The stakes are high, is what I'm saying. And the director, Katarina Talbach, who I've heard that name before. I should do a little research on her. She decides to say, right, me, the director, I'm going to per- play the role of Lucia's dead mother, and we're going to put you, Anna, in a wheelchair, and I'm going to wheel you around. Yeah. Well... That's great. I mean, I think people are not surprised when stuff like that happens in the German show. And since it was it was the prima, nobody would have been the wiser, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've heard of things like that where it was either Suzanne Metzner, Metzner or uh, Joyce Donato, one of those like lovable mezzos who broke their leg and like ended up singing the role of Rosina in Barbara Seville with like a full cast. You're you know? exactly You're right. It was jo- Joyce Donato, okay. June of 09, Covent Garden. Barbara Seville, and uh, she did two acts on crutches. Did you find this on Opera Bass, or what did, where did you pick this up? <laughs> I'm not sure where I found that. Okay. It wasn't on Opera Bass. Opera okay. Bass is much more numbers yeah, 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 they than don't that. care about um, feel-good stories. So. I, I put a, I put a, fo- a production photo uh-huh. from this production in Leipzig on the website, okay. operaboxscore.com. Here's my problem, mm-hmm. is that, like, the costumes are period. The yeah. wheelchair is contemporary. Mm. I think there's a bit of a disjunct yeah. there. First of all, they I was... You could distress it or something. Well, first yeah. of all, I was outraged that this opera house decided to do a period costuming for mm. Lucia. This German opera house would should know better <laughs> that everyone should be, like, dressed in a panda costume covered in menstrual blood. I mean, come on, get <laughs> exactly. it together. But really, if everyone's in a period costume, they should have, like, a wooden wheelchair like Roosevelt would have used yeah. or something. You know what I mean? yeah. Well, you can't win them all. It's kind of brilliant, though, in a way. Like, the show must go on. I would be terrified as a director being on the stage. Like, that would freak me out. I I really don't want to be anywhere near the stage, especially in a performance. But I'm sort of impressed by the uh, quick-wittedness of it, even though it didn't make any sense. Yeah. There are some really hard licks in that show, which I would like to be standing for if I was playing Lucia. I wouldn't want to sit sit through some of that. Maybe they gave her a cane. For those points. Or maybe Edgarda will like hoist her up and, you know, hold her while she's singing her high notes, you know. Moving on to some other overseas stories. So David Alden, half of the twins of Christopher and David yeah. Alden, who are both opera directors. I know. A weird they pairing. Let, of... Those parents lucked out. They really did. <laughs> we have two sons. So he's directing the, the, the first ever production of Billy Budd at the Bolshoi. Mm-hmm. Does it surprise you that in 2016 that opera has never been done at the Bolshoi? Mm, they have like those laws in Russia about no gay, right? Right. So maybe that's why. And that opera is it's pretty gay. rather gay. Yeah. Pretty yeah. Gay. It's about sailors. Mm-hmm. This production is not period at all. Alden was on the record about saying that it's not a period okay. production. So I just, I thought it might have been done sooner. I mean, Britain's been dead for, you know, 40 years now, right? So. 76, 80. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I just thought that was surprising. It's a co-production, by the way, with English National Opera. Okay, there you go. The Deutsche Oper so, Berlin. So maybe somebody at ENO was saying, "Hey, it's about time, you guys, come on." On a show a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Domingo doing this this uh, tour. Cuban to tour, Havana, yeah. And now Fidel Castro is dead, and Domingo it's not canceled; it's just postponed. Yeah, because they didn't want to interrupt the national mourning. I mean, what can you do? I, I mean, he he couldn't go and do it, right? That would be bizarre. People bought tickets already? I imagine so, yeah. Yeah. Their tickets are still good. I'm sure it'll it's... it'll it'll be just fine. How about these 
opera singers that are doing this triple bill of Chekhov plays. Now, I've read some of these short plays, The Bear, and um, there's one about smoking, like an argument against smoking. Or I read them in grad school. So uh, these singers will really be tested to see if they can act. We're not really known for being great actors. No, and the company is like a little storefront opera yeah. company in London. Well, you're definitely saving money in the orchestra, that's for sure. Yeah, but it's so exposed. I mean, I wonder what the process would be like yeah, for I, that. Yeah, this is a bad idea to me. Like, you don't sell your, you know, your subscribers, your patrons, a show that they didn't want to see, you know? Right. If they're really into Chekhov, they probably go to the street theater. They don't go to the opera to get their Chekhov, you know? Trust me, these Chekhov plays are not that good Okay. Anyway, <laughs> I just think it's a funny choice. I'm trying to think of like if I was going to have opera singers just be in a play, presumably wouldn't I pick a play that was also an opera for at least some sort of consistency? Like Streetcar Named Desire, there's an opera version of that. Our Town, there's an opera version yeah. of that. Like wouldn't I just Yeah, so, or something with a lot of rhythm like Frankly, The Marriage the... of Figaro by um, Exactly, Beaumarchais, Beaumarchais, right? or The Importance of Being Earnest or something like that, you know. Yeah, exactly. It seems like a surprising choice to me. I hope it works out. I think for them, it's a but... bad choice. Yeah. We have to follow up on that story. I tag that one for later on. I will. I will. I'll see what the reviews are like. <laughs> yeah. uh, Giulio Ricordi, the mm-hmm. music publisher. Nice guy, I'm sure. Um, yeah. I said I said Verdi, and I'm right. And yes. Puccini. And yeah, Puccini like, as yeah, well. All sorts of Italian yeah. composers from that yeah. era. Yeah. Puccini? Mm, it's not the same be, era, obviously. Yeah, might be not have been born yet. I'm not sure. You yeah. Know, but... Possibly, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, uh, he's got his own statue now That's in great. Milano. That's great. Why the heck not? So that birds can <laughs> sit on it and crap. <laughs> One of these days, we're gonna have a statue for uh, performers' music. What is what is that website everybody uses? IMSLP. We need an IMSLP statue. <laughs> the guy who invented that. We need to do something for them. You know. I see that Wikipedia is actually in its uh, annual campaign yeah. right now to try and get money. If everyone who used Wikipedia gave three bucks, mm-hmm. their campaign would be done in an hour, they said. Wow. I'm not quite sure how the time I gave, component... Oh, I, I think I gave five bucks to Wikipedia a long time ago. I wonder if that's I wonder if they remember that. Was that worth it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't mind giving throwing five bucks at something, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If everybody who listened to Opera Box Score threw us five bucks... We would still need. <laughs> We've had some donations coming. Oh, we have. Actually. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank we're going to put your name donor. in the program, and we're going to send you free tickets to our live show. Thank you, donors. By the way, for that, uh, you know who you are, uh, but you can continue to donate Please. at Chicago. No, that's no, no. the Opera Company. <laughs> <laughs> Operaboxscore.com/slash/donate. <laughs> we'll be right back with Monday evening quarterback. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. Who made the grade? Here's Monday evening quarterback.
And we're back on Opera Box Score. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Oliver, what were we just listening to? We were listening to the sailor song uh, from Les Troyens. That was Topi uh, Letipuhu. Is that how you say his name? Topi Letipuhu. Uh, he's from fin- New Zealand, right? I think he's Finnish, actually. Okay. Um, tenor. Yeah, Finland. Finland. <laughs> yeah, it's all the same. Um, that was the equivalent of uh, Come Away, Fellow Sailors, Come Away from Diderot Aeneas. That was the French romantic version, which is much longer. But uh, it's funny that we were talking about Billy Budd. I did not plan this at all, but if you listen to the whole aria, it definitely uh, invokes uh, Billy and the Darby scene. Mm. And um, yeah, it's a really beautiful song like plopped into the middle of this very long opera, a uh, little island of just melody for its own sake. Uh, and I think it's one of the most beautiful melodies uh, in the show. And we were treated to um, Ryan Opera Center, Jonathan Johnson, singing uh, that aria uh, in the Lyric Opera production, which both of us sort of saw. I saw it last Monday, and you saw the first part. Yeah, that's exactly right. So again, it's Le Troyan by Berlioz at Lyric Opera of Chicago. I only saw the first act. I had a family emergency and had to go home. So here on Monday Evening Quarterback, I'm not going to be in a position to review it. That would be unfair. I want to start by asking you, Oliver, first of all, just super general, just about the story of the piece. It's basically based on Virgil's Aeneid. Is yes. there anything else I need to know? Um, it the It's... In five acts, but it's really in two parts. The first two acts are pre-Dido, and the last three acts are the story of Dido and Aeneas. And if you know the story of Dido and Aeneas, it's exactly the same story, just stretched out for a very, very long time. And then the first two acts are uh, sort of like a prologue uh, foreshadowing uh, the tragedy of Dido and Aeneas uh, with Cassandra and Corribus, I think his name is. Uh, as the two principal roles. And Cassandra um, sometimes is played by the same singer who sings Dido. Um, but it's sort of a mezzo-y role. And we had Christine Gerke. Um, and the big thing that happens at the end of the uh, Cassandra section is, is the mass suicide of the, I guess, they're Trojans? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of the women of Troy, you know. We've got another music clip we, we can get to in a second. Yeah. Um, let's focus first on why this opera is so rarely performed. There's been one production of this opera in the U.S. since 2014, and that was at San Francisco Opera. Yeah. There are only four companies in the U.S. who have who've dared to produce it. None um, of them are scheduled to produce it in the next two years. And even worldwide, this is off of operabase.com, mm. there's only been 10 productions total in the world of this show uh, that is scheduled from 2014 up until 2018. Hmm. So this is not a done show. Yeah. Well, it's just epic in scale, and um, the resources you need to put the show on are uh, the type of resources very, very few companies have. And basically, by saying that you're doing Les Troyens, you are saying that you have opera balls, You know that you have the resources to do this. You have the chorus, you have the orchestra, you have you know, the scenery... You have all the supernumeraries, you know, you have uh, the time to pay the orchestra because you're definitely going to go into overtime uh, with orchestra unions by doing this. You have the, the choral talent. Uh, it's just a massive, massive show. And uh, yeah, it's like it's balls, you know, to do it. You know? It's another discussion whether or not Lyric had or has the resources to do that. Obviously, there's been some questions 
about their financial status. That's for a different show. Yeah. 94 choristers are in this production at Lyric. There's 77 instrumentalists mm-hmm. in the pit. Obviously, this is big. I mean, it's it's comparable to an Aida or a Nabucco or a Ring Cycle, but in a way, it's really bigger. Would you agree? Yeah, it's it's longer than any opera in the Ring Cycle. I think there might be, I think Meistersinger is the same length, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, it's Which just is not part of the ring. Cycle. Right, 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 right. Yeah, but uh, it's just huge. And Aida, you can you can compress Aida into three hours if you need to. You can cut some things, you know. But you also need like ballet. There's at least two ballet scenes in this show, and if you're going to stage it, it's a French opera. It needs its its ballet. I think there are actually three ballets in the wow. show in total. So. Yeah, Andrew insane. Davis was the conductor. Mm-hmm. Tim Albrey was the director. The Englishman Tim Albrey. Uh, you've mentioned Christine Gerke, uh, Susan Graham. Susan Graham was the replacement for Sophie Koch. I don't know if she got sick or she's on the disabled list or whatnot, but um, that was the real coup de grace of lyric opera. I mean, Susan Graham is known for her portrayal of Dido, and um, this set design is gigantic. It's an epic set design, and I can't think of any other singer alive today who can fill out that set so regally as so Susan Grant. Talk us through the design a little bit, then we'll listen to the next clip, and then we'll do. Yeah, a so bit the, it's on one that. giant set piece that has multi-purpose. Uh, in the first act or the first two acts, it's the ruins of Troy, and then in the Dido and Aeneas scene, it's restored. And it's sort of like the death, like in the first act, sort of like the Death Star. You know, it's like kind of all broken down, you know. And then in the... It was uh, basically a big sort of circular wall. It's like a coliseum, yeah. Positioned onto a revolve. Yes. So that this And that's thing... a brand new thing. It's like a revolve, like those old restaurants that have like the spinning dining room tables, yeah. you know. It's like that, but just on a giant scale. And it also has enough flat surfaces on it that they can do projections onto it, which they didn't do in the Cassandra scenes, but they did in the Dido there scenes. There was a projection of the Trojan horse okay. on there. But yeah. this revolve, you know, you might remember from Les Mis that famously used a revolve. And I, oh, really? Okay. And I thought that uh, Tim Aubrey used the revolve very successfully to ke- really keep the piece. Yeah, and there moving. was so it's like it's sort of like a, a semicircle, not quite a bit long, uh, more uh, com- complete than a semicircle. But when you got to the opening, there was also a little like lectern for uh, Dido to stand at and to be, you know, the queen to her people. And enough, like I said, flat surface so they could project. You know, really interesting. There was a one at one point like a waterfall. At one point, there was like a a nightscape, like of like stars mm. and planets like that. So it really. And then they also were able to spin it in a way so that it was sort of uh, closed to the audience, so that it, it shrunk the stage and they could do more intimate scenes in front of it. You know, mm. so it was it was great and it looked very expensive. You know, and uh, it definitely framed the action really beautifully. And there wasn't so much physical action all the time. Uh, so the projections came in handy when there was a little bit more static. You know, it was so. brilliant that those projections could go onto the curved surface yeah. of this of this wall. And although I did not make it through the yeah. whole piece because I had to leave early, this idea about like the collapse of this empire, the rebuilding of this empire, mm. and the ultimate collapse of it again was kind of very simply and very beautifully done, I thought, through this design. The costumes were not... Be- specifically period. I mean, they were no, modern. Yeah. They felt know? like Les Miserables, actually. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was yeah. all very sort of blue and gray. Yeah. Um, but Apoc- I, post-apocalyptic, something like that. Yeah, mm. but like knee-length skirts. I mean, people weren't wearing ruffs, but they weren't wearing like 
Yeah, it wasn't a toga opera, that's for sure. Nor was it a cell phone yeah. opera either. Yeah. You know? But well, uh, in, in the Kassan, I mean, in the Dido scene, you know, uh, Susan Grant comes out and she's dressed like in a Angela Merkel, you know, type of like get dare up. Dare I like, say Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah, something like that. So, and it worked. It totally worked. And as I was saying before, you know, Susan Graham is a very tall woman. And Brandon Jovanovich, who played Aeneas, is a very tall man. And so when they were on stage, they really did feel like the principal characters just by their height, you know. Mm -hmm. And I know that's they were lucky to have that type of casting, but it, it definitely helped their case, you know, like we are the important people on stage. Look how tall we are. You know? uh, Dave Govertson was also in the show. Yes, he's yes. also quite tall. Yeah, he's called, yeah, he's <laughs> uh, the ghost of Priam or something like that in that show, you know. Uh, hey, do you want to listen to another clip yeah, before so we let's review just, the singing? Let's listen to um, a 2003, oh, by the way, that was that recording we just heard. I don't know when it was from, but it was with um, John Ella Gardner and the Orchestre Revolutionnaire. Um, and we're going to hear now um, the 2003 uh, Susan Graham, I think this is from Paris Opera. Um, this is basically the entrance of Dido, uh, where she addresses her people, Cher Tyrion, and um, she just sounds so elegant and so like dignified in this. Lots of chorus. <laughs> All right, Oliver, so tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're hearing in that clip. Well, you're just hearing the, the, the big use of chorus in this show and uh, the necessity for the person, the, the mezzo-soprano singing Dido, to have 
you know, an authoritative sound uh, to be able to sing over the chorus and also to be able to, you know, deploy the line in a way that feels, you know, regal and elegant. And you have to have that type of tone quality to do it. Like, you can't just have anybody singing Dido. There has to be an inherent or intrinsic quality in the voice that speaks of nobility, you know? And how about the singers in the production that you saw at Lyric? What did you think of them? I mean, I think Susan Graham was amazing. I I mean, I'm honestly never been a big fan of her singing, uh, but in this case, uh, I, like I said, I can't imagine anybody else doing it as well as she did it. Um, There are some uh, very dramatic uh, phrases uh, in the last act when she's about to kill herself and it needs to be, you know, a little more savage. Um, I've never thought of Susan Graham as a savage singer. And I would have almost liked to have heard Christine Gerke sing those lines because Christine Gerke can be an animal on the stage, you know. But that aside, uh, the rest of the of her music, especially the duets with um, the mezzo and with Brandon Jovanovic, uh, they were really beautiful. The mezzo, I have to look at the program to get her name right. Uh, Oka von der Damerau. She was amazing. I'd never heard her sing before, and she's definitely a singer to watch. Gorgeous tone quality, uh, ability to sing the entire, um, you know, scale very evenly, great diction, and very, very well poised. Um, the tenor Jonathan Johnson in the very tiny role of Elas had a beautiful moment. Brendan Jovanovich is one of those singers that you either like me or don't like him. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, he does a certain type of repertoire that not everybody can do. Uh, Brian E. Mel sang uh, the role of Aeneas at the Met when I saw this opera, whatever, like four years ago. And I remember being so impressed by Brian E. Mel just because it seemed so easy for him. Hmm. Brandon Jovanovich uh, showed how hard this role is. It was still very impressive, but I felt like he was working really hard (laughs) to get through it. Um, Christian Van Horn uh, is a graduate of the Ryan Opera Center, and he sang the role of Narbal, which is Dido's kind of like uh, minister or advisor. Such a gorgeous voice, also very like regal and authoritative, and cuts a very dashing figure on stage. Um, yeah, those are the the standouts uh, yeah. in the cast, and of course Christine Gerke uh, in her. I felt like she was underused. I mean, like she probably was here to do planning for the you know, ring cycle that they've got going on coming up. But um, yeah, I would have liked to have heard more of Christian Kirk. It's not her fault, though. It is a lot of American singers that you've listed. Funda Damrau is an exception there, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I'll tell you where Funda Damrau Do you know where she's from? I didn't look at her. I, I assume she's from... Oh, she's from, German. From yeah, Germany, she's right? She's German, yeah. yeah. But the rest are, yeah. But and, they're not native French speakers, and the opera is in French. Yeah, so... Was that problematic for you? Uh, probably it would have been if I would have been thinking about it, you know, like I don't know the libretto well enough to know, uh, you know, to be able to quote any lines and seek. That's what I, I mean, operas like Lucia, I know it so well. I don't even have to look at the super tiles, but you know, Toyan, I've still got to pay attention and be tuned in, dialed into what I'm reading. So I'm not listening as much, you know, I can only really assess the chorus and even mm-hmm. then just the chorus that I saw, you know, before the first intermission, I'm going to say this is there, there's a lot of bodies on stage and it is really difficult to move those bodies around. You know, Tim Aubrey, this is a guy who knows what he's doing. He's probably got two, possibly even three, no, I think it was two assistant directors Mm -hmm. working on the show as well. Even then, there were moments when it it felt a little bit, 
paint by numbers or a little bit sort of everyone was kind of moving on mass. Yeah, it would be great I, to have a little bit more I, detail I mean, and nuance in there. I I disagree with you because I saw Lucia and I had that complaint about okay. it, like big complaint about yeah. that. Compared to Lucia, these choristers had characters, and okay. especially in the scene that you didn't see, there were real relationships happening, and there was like I, I felt a real sense of individuals. Okay. So, and it was much more organized. Like the the chaotic ruin tro Troy was hard to follow. What was going on? You just have to keep your eyes on Christine Gerke. But after that, it, the set became very beautiful and clean, and everybody looked nice, and there was clear characters happening for me at least. I'm so. glad to hear that. Again, I'm not in a position to account for anything that happened after the first break. Uh, the show's got one more performance. If you're in Chicago and you're listening to this in time, it's on I, Saturday. I think that you can't not go. I mean, how many times in your life are you going to get a chance to see this show, you know? And I have to say, the, the five hours kind of flew by. I thought I was going to be bored out of my skull, but I was able to stay engaged and there was some real beautiful dancing that helped and uh, some of the lyrical moments, especially, like I said, the, the sailor song, Jonathan Johnson, and the duets were gorgeous. So we're going to be right back and we're going to wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, my man. Well, it's been an unusual show. You, you know, the podcast thing has never been my favorite. Right, I really like the live radio show, and you're more the the podcasting type of guy. I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're right. You're right. I don't like the pressure of of being. I mean, get me on a stage, no problem. But when I'm in front of a mic, I get a little more self conscious. Uh, funny thing, you know, Peter Sagal. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Sure. He insisted that they do wait, wait, don't tell me in front of a live audience. The, the first couple of seasons were done in the studio. Okay. And he feels that he is more funny in front of a live audience. Yeah. Know? So I like the live show not because it makes me funnier necessarily, but because uh, I feel like I'm creating something mm -hmm. in real time that there is stakes there that can go wrong. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the podcast, you can always go back and edit. And yeah. I'm not going to edit this. Nothing on this show has <laughs> okay. been edited. Partly because I don't have the time with the kiddos. Um, but there's something, because I don't perform anymore, you know, so like doing the live radio show is mm -hmm. a form of performance right. for me. And it doesn't really freak me out. You're not going to um, go back to singing a mall and the night visitors? Like, not unless my voice <laughs> changes again the other way. You could have an accident. So. <laughs> uh, do you have a, a good call or a bad Well, call by the time you're listening to this, at the minimum, it's going to be Giving Tuesday. And I think if you have the means. You know, help an artist out, you know, help an organization out. There are so many fledgling companies that are trying to find their way and some that have been very successful at finding their niche. Um, I could say that Haymarket Opera Company is doing work that's very important to me since I'm such a big fan of the music that they've chosen. I don't always agree with what they do on stage, but I know what they're going for and I want to see them thrive. So I say throw some money at a company that you love. Maybe it's Chicago Fringe Opera. Maybe it's Chicago Opera Theater, which has this five for five million dollar campaign they're trying to do for next year. You know, like That's whatever, you know, don't give your money to the lyric. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> if you like lyric, do that, you know, or maybe it's a, a podcast that you really care about. Um, Math and Black's doing the work, you know, uh, opera box score. I don't know. You know, there's there's something out there. Give them five dollars just to let let them know that you're listening and you you care. You know. 
That's it for this week's show. Our announcer is Norm Woodell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. At WNUR, our programming director is Nick Anderson and the general manager is Brock Stussy. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook and Twitter, search for Opera Box Score. Like our Facebook page, share and comment on our posts, and tweet us at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. Give us 30 seconds of your time, and please leave a review on iTunes. It's the cheapest and the fastest way to promote our show. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera over those delicious Thanksgiving leftovers. We're back live on air next Monday night at 9 Central when Opera Box Score countdowns to Christmas and Hanukkah. Come celebrate with us, opera style.